Guys, welcome back. Pop Culture Podcast, Tyson Popplestone here. And uh, we're mixing things up a bit today. I've been telling you this is going to happen for a little while. I don't know if you guys believe me, though. Usually, this is where we stop by and, uh, you know, you've heard me speak. You've heard me speak more than enough. So today, I wanted to ask a bloke who's uh, who's much smarter than me a whole lot of questions about a topic that he's really switched on. His name is Alex Pang, and he's the author of a book called Rest, where you get more done when you rest more. And it's a topic that I was fascinated by. I finished this book three weeks ago, got recommended to me from someone. I can't remember who, but great recommendation. So I finished it and had to reach out to him and ask him if I could pick his brain on the podcast. And uh, hey, he was good enough to oblige. So he's coming at us from, I'm pretty sure he's in the Silicon Valley. And he's uh, a heads up. He's got a cheeky little dog in his room. It barks for about two minutes. But don't worry about that dog bark, all right? It doesn't stay there for very long. It's two minutes at the start, about 30 seconds at one other part of the podcast, and then the rest of the conversation, it's just me and him. So, uh, hey, really good chat, really interesting uh, conversation about finding that balance between working hard and playing hard and the benefits of both. So um, if you enjoy it, make sure you shoot him some love. Alex Pang, make sure you check out his books, uh, Rest and Shorter. I'll put them in the show notes below. But hey, for the meantime, let me get out of your way and enjoy this interview with the great man from the United States, Mr. Alex Pang. What are you gonna tell us, tough guys? My usual, zero, nothing. Man, I, uh, I really enjoyed your book a couple of weeks ago, your first book, Rest. I, I got recommended, uh, I can't remember exactly where I heard the news, but for a little while now, I've been fascinated with the, with the idea of, I guess, living more intentionally um and really trying to not only work well but have more of a, a lifestyle balance with you know where I commit my time and and, and the reasons for that and uh, Matt you'd be the uh, the first person to be able to acknowledge and probably elaborate on the fact that uh, all of my friends uh, a lot of people I associate with including myself far more than I like to admit I'm I'm the king of trying to be productive oh, he's our little mate we, you warned me about him um king of trying to be productive but when it comes to um, you know, being a little more intentional with what productivity looks like as opposed to just doing more, something that a lot, a lot of us um, can struggle with. And I'm not sure if, you, if your dog has, has kidnapped you, but if... <laughs> I'm here, not to worry. <laughs> I'm, uh, I, I was just interested to hear a little more about your journey um, into the world of, I guess, for lack of a better term, in intentional living or more deliberate practices with our work life? Mm-hmm. So, you know, I think like a lot of people who, um, you know, who get into this, for me, it was, you know, it was a bunch of less, uh, this is a subject that I became interested in the hard way, right? You know, I've worked as a, as a tech, sort of futurist and writer in Silicon Valley for, you know, more than 20 years now. And it's a sort of work that, you know, as a consultant, you're always, you know, wanting to say sort of yes to sort of the next project. Um, you always have, you know, clients who are doing really interesting stuff. And there are not a lot of obvious, you know, sort of hedges around your work, right? This isn't a sort of work that ends when the sun goes down or the factory whistle sort of goes off or even the dog barks. <laughs> and so, you know, after one, about 10 years ago, after one particularly sort of complicated project, I realized that I needed to make some changes that I was, you know, I was uh, burning out that this really wasn't sustainable. I was very fortunate at the time to get 
an offer to go to Microsoft Research Cambridge on a sabbatical. And there, you know, sort of, I did a lot of really cool stuff and talked to neat people as one does in Cambridge. But about, you know, about a month into it, I had this epiphany where I realized that I was doing all this really interesting work, but I didn't feel the kind of time pressure that I had that's, you know, just part of life here mm. in Silicon Valley. And it made me, made me think that maybe our assumptions about the necessity of overwork, about the kind of or of moral virtue of long hours, the or of the kind of romantic quality of sacrificing oneself in the pursuit of, you know, of a calling or you know, a world-changing idea or work. Maybe all those ideas actually are completely backwards. That you know, in order to do work that we really love, we actually need to figure out ways in which we can work more sustainably mm. and sort of more deliberately and very often sort of work fewer hours. And so that idea stuck around for a while and eventually, um, you know, kind of wouldn't go away. And I started digging into it and realized two things. One was that, you know, there was a, that when you look at the daily lives of really creative people, like Nobel Prize winners and, um, you know, famous authors and folks like this, you see that they often have daily routines that are very much like the life that I had discovered or on sabbatical, right? They are doing incredible work, but they're also living really sort of terrific lives. Um, and they are laboring far fewer hours than we generally acknowledge as necessary for doing world-class work. And the second thing is that, th so there is a kind of community of accomplished people who sort of, uh, who, managed to do really great things while working in a very different kind of way than we do and living what I think anybody would acknowledge, would see as what a very admirable sort of lives. The second thing is that there's a whole body of research from neuroscience and the psychology of creativity that helps explain why these particular practices like working in or having routines where you work in the early hours um, sort of designing days that are maybe four that that are organized around four or five hours of really deep focused time. Um, what you know, routines that do not look immediately productive, like having really serious hobbies or mm. sort of you know regular exercise. Why these things all turn out to have both immediate and long-term payoffs for creative people. And when I realized all that stuff, it struck me that you know there was uh, that this is that there was a coherent story here well worth telling. And that it offered not really you know, a blueprint so much for sort of how to organize one's, uh, you know, one's own time and one's own life, but something closer to um, like a set of sort of principles that you could use to figure out, um, you know, sort of routines and schedules and principles that, uh, that would work for you, whether you were Know, a writer like me or an ER doctor or first responder or, you know, entrepreneur. Mm. So um, that's what got me started on this. And the, you know, I think that the last thing I'll say in terms of intentionality is that throughout the work that I've done since then, both follow-ups 
know, further studies on rest and deliberate, uh, deliberate uh, practice and deliberate rest. Um, but also in my latest book about companies that have moved to four day weeks, that intentionality is really sort of extremely important, both as, you know, as a, as a sort of source of sort of, uh, as a driver for sort of uh, encouraging experimentation with new practices, with new routines, um, as a source of discipline for sort of developing new ways of working. And I think as a way, uh, as a kind of springboard for sort of curiosity and asking challenging questions about why it is that we work the way that we do and whether it's possible to do things differently. Mm. Um, so, and I think in, you know, in a world that both has, that has removed the guardrails around work and work time, and made that seem uh, made inevitable and inescapable that we should labor ever longer hours and do so, you know, do so happily and willingly. Um, that that kind of intentionality is more important than it has ever been. So um, I'll stop there. Yeah, no, that's awesome, man. That's a, a really good run over. One of the things I've found super interesting uh, in so many different aspects of my life, I've got a, I've got a background in middle distance running. Um, I've worked in the corporate scene for, uh, or I did work in the corporate scene for a couple of years um, and also perform here in Melbourne as a stand-up comedian. One thing mm. which crosses over um, so many of those areas or so many of those different parts of my life is that every person, including myself at some stage, uh, we find it very easy to, to ignore putting up any guardrails and, and just take this approach that, okay, more is better. And you touched on it when you were speaking about that, um, yeah, almost a moral high ground or something which is appraised by so many people of, oh, I was the first one in the office and I was the last one to leave. Um, we don't touch on the fact that for three of those hours, we're on Facebook. And then the same <laughs> is true in a stand-up comedy. One thing I notice regularly is, um, this isn't to slight any of my mates, but a number of the blokes who are out there performing um every single day maybe multiple gigs a day it doesn't always correlate to to the best performance and of course in middle distance running um the people who do more unless they're sort of a genetic freak are often the ones who plateau in performance or or can suffer setbacks through injuries and it's it's taken me you know probably the last 15 years of tinkering and listening to people like yourself to to really get my my head around the importance of these guardrails and in fact the the benefits on, I think it's most clear to me in the sport of distance running that, that recovery is an essential part of performance. You're not going to run fast if you're not taking time to let the work absorb. And um, one of the things, even after I listened to your book, I, I listened to your interview, um, I'm not sure of his name, uh, with, with a British podcaster on the way home from Melbourne the other night, Live, um, live Well, Live More or something, I think was the name of the podcast. Mm -hmm. And uh, it got me thinking a, a little more about where to even begin when it comes to putting guardrails up in my life. And, and one thing which was, it, it's so almost subliminal, it just snuck into a lot of my day was um, I would have a spare 30 seconds in my day and I might just quickly jump on Instagram or I might just quickly jump on and, and read about the local news. And it was incredible to see how much time when I was aware of it was taken away with just insignificant, unhelpful tasks. And I often got to the end of the day and, and felt just pent up and a, a little bit overwhelmed, like I had no spare moment in my day. But just mm -hmm. the other day, uh, after listening to your podcast, I came home and I wrote down about eight areas of my life from social media to reading news, 
um, to, you know, sending text messages that, that just add up to a lot of my day taken out, which I can just chunk at the end of the day. So maybe for 30 minutes, I go, all right, I'm not going to touch any of that. But the last 30 minutes of my day, I'll chunk all of those things that I've been patient. And it's amazing how much um, more productive, I guess, for lack of a better term, how much more focus I was from writing comedy to, to uh, day trading um, and just an overall sense of peace. So I guess that's a long lead into a question uh, because it was something I struggled with a little bit for people who are uh, trying to navigate this idea of, all right, there's way too much going on in my life. There's way too many commitments and I have no idea where to even begin looking at putting up guardrails for where I'm allowed to work and where I'm not allowed to work. Are there any sort of start points that, that you can recommend for the people to go, all right, this has got to stop. Let's make a change. Well, I think that there's, uh, let me, let me, Sort of, uh, first of all, sort of um, make a difference between sort of uh, commitments along the lines of you know, sort of family stuff, for example, or of the things that uh, that uh, versus um, the kinds of things that you know you were talking about, like you know, sort of checking Instagram. I mean, I think that the sort of the the for, the former are the things that you want to create time for. And the latter are things that you want to be able to, to be more intentional about and to have better control over. Now, I think it's, you know, when you are, you know, we often, uh, we often think of sort of the uh, dealing with the second as, you know, mainly kind of sort of matters of self-discipline. Um, and, but, you know, I th- it's, and, you know, akin to, you know, overindulging in fast food or something like this. But, you know, it's a bit like, the situation, the situation is more complicated and, and stacked more against us. You know, when we go into, when we go into McDonald's, we are not going up against a hundred PhDs in behavioral economics and food science who are crafting every meal, you know, based on time of day, what we've eaten before, sort of where we've been that day, you know, et cetera, et cetera. That situation is very much what we confront when we go onto Instagram or to Facebook, you know, or on Facebook. Um, you know, you are essentially, you know, you're you're playing chess against a whole room full of really, really smart chess masters who are determined to keep you playing as long as possible. So I think that the, you know, that um, there's, uh, that we need to, we need first off to recognize this and to kind of diffuse the argument that it is mainly kind of a moral slash self-discipline sort of uh, self-discipline issue. I think that the second thing with regard to like technologies and sort of other kinds of distractions is recognizing that, you know, our relationships with technologies can be incredibly profound and enriching and sort of important to us. That, you know, when you, when you read something like Mihai Csikszentmihalyi's book, Flow, or you look at you know, the history of you know, the history of human evolution. One of the things you realize is that our ancestors' interactions with and capacity to use tools was one of the things that helped, you know, helped make us helped create Homo sapiens. And today, some of our most profound experiences are ones that can happen with and through technologies. You read Flow, which, and if your listeners have not, I highly, highly recommend. It is uh, sort of, it is, 
it's one of those sort of works of psychology that is both very deep and very accessible in a way that can really change your life. You realize an awful lot of the experiences that Csikszentmihalyi talks about in that book involve technologies of one kind or another. And so I think that the, you know, that, uh, that highlights both what is at stake in making these relationships work well. It's also highlights just how, you know, how deeply engaged and involved we can become with our devices. Mm. And the fact that, you know, that, you know, tools, you know, that tools like these have now become, you know, machines, you know, machines by which, you know, or, uh, by which commercial entities are able to, you know, bid to commodify and resell our attention on a moment by moment basis, you know, interaction by interaction. This is, you know, this is the thing that's very new in the history of technology. And so um, I think, uh, so, you know, learning to get a handle on that by being more mindful of sort of, you know, how it is that um, these techno uh, that these, you know, these products sort of try to capture and commodify our attention. Um, and then learning how to, or sort of learning how to be more mindful with technologies is sort of an incredibly valuable thing. Um, behind me, there's actually um, a, a book with a red cover called The Distraction Addiction, which was actually my first trade press book from which, you know, I've basically just been riffing for the last couple minutes. And then, you know, I think that the, uh, then, you know, when you, with regard to, you know, other big commitments, I think that the, you know, the, what I have been seeing both in, or the, you know, people who have a lot of control over their time, right? You know, high, you know highly creative, independent, cre uh, sort of, uh, or highly independent creatives. And then also people who are leading companies that are moving to shorter work weeks. You know, I think that the, the overarching story for them is one where they're recognizing that there are ways that there, uh, that there are opportunities for redesigning your work days, redesigning your time, and that serve to clarify priorities to sort of enhance the, you know, enhance the sort of productivity or the, you know, output of sort of, of working time, um, which then leaves you freer to, you know, to sort of attend to all of those other commitments that, you know, ultimately are, you know, as important or more, or more so than you know whatever whatever work stuff we have going on, as much as we like to sometimes mm -hmm. sort of believe that you know uh, or to believe to the contrary. Mm -hmm. So you know, and you know, this is one of the great drivers for you know for leaders of companies who are moving to four day weeks is wanting to have more time for things like family or time with their spouses or time you know sort of time for serious hobbies. And so, you know, and it turns out that there's an awful lot of inefficiency in our working day that we can root out that, you know, we can, that essentially we can convert into time that is more meaningful and is more intentionally spent. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, both those fronts, the sort of in our relationships with our devices and our relationship with our work and our workplaces, um, there are opportunities to apply intentionality in ways that allow us to take inefficiency and wasted time and convert it into something that's much more valuable to us.
It's mm, a really good point. You touched on um, just the importance or, or, or the reasons that people look at four day weeks or look at reducing the amount of work they're doing from a mm-hmm. time perspective. And, and one thing like, you know, most husbands or, or most people in a family could relate to is, is that's exactly the same with, with myself. I've got an 18 month old here now. And, and, and one of the things that I constantly noticed was um, just how uh, the access to technology could so easily just infiltrate that time that I said I wanted to dedicate to, you know, hanging with my wife or hanging with my little boy and, um, what I, what I've noticed with myself, and I'm not sure whether this is a, a, a quite a common thing. I, I'm going to guess it is amongst a lot of people who are maybe a little more type A personality is that, um, uh, at the gates, I, I set out with the intention of, okay, um, I'm going to, you know, be, I'm going to have the guardrails in place. I'm going to set up a structure so that, um, once this work is done, I can focus on these other areas of my life. And, uh, if I'm honest, a lot of the time I'll, I'll, put those boundaries up and realize, oh my gosh, I've got an extra two hours now. And mm-hmm. then with that extra two hours, I guess I'm guessing this comes down to a discipline thing. I say, well, fantastic. Now I can edit my podcast and I can put that together. And before I know it, it's I've saved all this time, but that time that I've saved, I'm, I'm not using to, to refresh or play or recoup. Not all the time. Sometimes I do it well, but sometimes I stumble into the, uh, into the bad habit of going, Hey, I'm going to do a little bit more. I'm going to see how much more I can get done. So uh, one of the things I loved in your book and, and heard you speak about quite in depth that I'd love to talk to you about is this idea of, and I hope I'm explaining this well, if not, please correct me. But uh, a lot of the time when you've, you know, you've worked quite hard, you've created this time, uh, it's a little bit hard to know what to do with, but with quite disciplined, intentional play, uh, a habit mm-hmm. or a hobby outside of the work world, it, it can make it a lot easier to take your mind off those things which are consuming so much of your, your sort of conscious attention. So, um, you know, I've heard you speak about going out and taking your dog for a walk. And then the, I'm a big fan of Malcolm Gladwell. And I've, I hear him speak about, uh, you know, his running and Murakami as well is a mm-hmm. marathon runner. And it's right. it's interesting. You, you draw my attention to it. But so many of these people who are considered such high performers in their field, uh, they seem to have this, this, uh, this playtime or this, this side hustle, which, you know, I guess serves as both a physical release and also a, a, you know, a psychological refresher. Um, Are you able to elaborate a a little more on the benefits of play and and, and how play can actually serve us with the the other areas of our life that, you know, so much of our conscious attention works towards? Sure. I mean, you know, that, uh, that physical release and psychological refreshment is sort of, you know, is uh, essential for, of both renewing you know the mental and physical energies that we spend working but it's also really important over the long run in it turns out things like healthy aging you know the avoidance of chronic diseases when we're older um avoidance of depression in middle you know in sort of midlife and midlife and beyond so you know these these are things that have payouts both in the short run and in the very long run right over days and over decades um I think that the, you know, what I see is that it's, you know, it's not that in addition to sort of the, you know, the physical and psychological benefits that, you know, there's an additional question of, you know, what kind of, basically, what kind of thing will you actually stick to and Mm. sort of what thing and sort of, uh, and there is an very often what you see are people choosing hobbies or sports 
often sometimes you know physically strenuous even dangerous ones that off that turn you know that they choose partly because they are as fascinating as work um they're as engaging and they even offer some of the same kinds of rewards mm. psychological rewards as you find in work at its best without the downsides or sort of the long time frames so you know, one of my favorite examples is mountain climbing, which a lot of people in rest uh, sort of do. And, you know, the scientists talk about mountain climbing as being like doing science. You know, you're, it's a kind of engagement with the natural world. You've got this very clear goal. You have a thousand one little problems that you have to solve and you solve them. And eventually sort of you, you know, you get to the top. The difference is that sort of the outcome is incredibly clear. And generally, this is something that takes either a day or days rather than years. And, you know, during after at the end of which sometimes with experiments, the, you know, the results can be of, you know, or of, um, or of frustratingly ambiguous. Mm. And so it is a lot of what they really like about doing science fast, clearly, and in a different medium, um, you know, at the same time, CEOs talk about mountain climbing as being great because it's like leadership, mm. right? And so it's the same activity, but people are sort of people are finding different kinds of rewards in it. And consistently in people who in highly accomplished people who have these kinds of serious hobbies, and a lot of these people do, you know, I find that kind of pattern again and again, right? The of the people choosing you know, choosing activities that offer some of the same rewards psychologically as work in a different context, in a, in a faster time scale, minus the frustrations. Mm -hmm. This is also important because at a practical level, it serves to provide often a degree of resilience and perspective. You know, as, um, as one climber said, you know, when you have of when you've been in life and death situations in the death zone, you know, on Mount Everest, as mm -hmm. he had, you know, sort of a, you know, a paper rejection just doesn't feel as significant <laughs> as it would otherwise. It's also the case as a very practical matter that when you have those kinds of, you know, those kinds of serious hobbies, you organize your time better. Um, you know, you're, you're simply less likely to, you know, sort of, sort of waste time when you've got these other, sort of these other serious commitments that you want to get to. The final thing is that there is some interesting, um, interesting evidence that, the, that experimentation in one realm sort of plays off of or enhances experimentation in other realms. In the physical, sort of physical experimentation seems to enhance Sort of intellectual or of intellectual experimentation. The best example or of, of study of this is a long-term study of scientists in Southern California that went from the 1950s to the 1990s. So this is a whole generation of, of scientists over the course of their entire sort of their entire professional lives. And what they found was that looking at 40 scientists at UCLA and Caltech and USC, that over time, you know, starting in the 50s, all these people had you know, they were like young, bright, promising folks. Over time, 
you get this group of high performers, including four Nobel laureates, and then a second group of people whose careers kind of stall out. Psychologically, they look almost identical. IQs are the same, performance on Rorschach tests, you know, all, all that kind of stuff. There's virtually no difference. The big difference comes in that the high performing group tends to be more athletic and they tend to choose adventurous kinds of sports like climbing, um, sailing, diving, or of this being Southern California, <laughs> surfing. And they see, you know, they see those sports as expressions of the same kinds of passion that they bring to the laboratory. Mm. And they don't see themselves as having to make a choice in their sort of personal lives or in their schedules between one or the other. The low performing cohort, in contrast, does not, does not have these kinds of hobbies in part because they don't see them they don't see them as connected and they don't see themselves as having the time to pursue them. And so I think that the, you know, what this, I think, I think what this teaches us is not that high performing people because their geniuses have time for sports. It is that that kind of investment and learning how sort of, you know, learning how to intend to use your time both in the laboratory or the office and the playing field intentionally sort of creates more time, creates yeah. a psychological sense that you have the time for both and that you can benefit from both. So, um, you know, and then of course the thousand and one other benefits of play in terms of expanding your imagination, et cetera, et cetera. Probably most people are, are quite familiar with that firsthand, but I think that the, you know, what I would leave them with is the idea that there are, you know, is that, the more, the better you get at play in one realm, um, the better actually you get at play in all of them. And mm. sort of, and, par and somewhat paradoxically, at least at first blush, the more time you spend on them, the sort of the more time you have for them. So. Mm. No, that's a, that's a really good point. I was smiling throughout what you were speaking about there because I've experienced so much of what you just said firsthand. Actually, um, to, to steal your, your direct example, in 2015, <laughs> I, I spent a month climbing through the Himalayas um, over in Nepal, and wow. uh, it was an awesome experience. But what it was the first really big um, sort of mountain climbing experience that I had had. Um, we got to the top of a couple of really good mountains. And uh, it was actually, it was a, a potential qualification. I was trying to get a spot on a team to have a crack at Everest the following year, but it's a, it's a long drawn out story that we don't have time for here. But I, um, uh, I, I thought I was going to be spending a month with a bunch of hippies and because uh, I'd spoken to a couple <laughs> of the boys that I was going to Nepal with and uh, I got there and what, what honestly blew my mind was throughout the trek, it was exactly as you said, sure, there was a couple of hippies. But mm -hmm. I, I got into some conversations throughout that month with at least three that I can think of off the top of my head who, to steal your exact, exact example, were CEOs of companies from, one was from Germany and two of them were from the States. And yep. I had these similar conversations. I said, mate, like, how do you organize the time? And it, it, one of them said, I, I, I don't have time not to do this. He goes, I go back to work for the rest <laughs> of the year. And he goes, I, I feel like a brand new man. And, and another example, which wasn't quite mountain climbing, but on the same front, was my wife and I in, in 2017, we walked um, the El Camino de Santiago from mm -hmm. um, into, into Portugal. And, and, and one, of the, uh, one of the standout features there again, and, and there was a German guy who stands out to me 
pretty much identical conversation to what I had with the uh, with the guy in Nepal. He said to me that the year before he was recommended to go and do a six week trek if he could find the time. And he said to me, he goes, mate, I I was so nervous, I was so confused, I hadn't had time off work for for twenty five years. He said, but he went back to to Germany, and uh, he said not only his wife, <laughs> but his employees were just just shocked at the man he had come <laughs> back as. And I could I could appreciate it because I was getting a sense of what it was he was experiencing. I I, I felt like a a real what do you say? Um, there was like a, almost a coming down of just that buzz that's constantly going on in your mind. Um, and I just remember feeling a, a real perhaps more present than than I'd ever felt before, and thinking, man, I wish I could just bottle this up. And bring it home. And, and, and I think that's what hearing you speak about rest does. It gives you some practical structures and some guidelines and some, um, you know, some real tangible tools that, that allow you to, to bottle up that feeling and, and apply it to your own life. But it's, it's amazing to think of it as a habit, because like anything that we're doing for the first time, it can be really difficult to know. Um, all right, like you go to a gym once and you just get sore muscles and you think, oh, okay, well, it doesn't really feel like it's doing much benefit to me. And I noticed that in my own life, I go, okay, it's 3 PM. I've given myself uh, sort of I, I, at the moment, I'm just trialing starting at 9 AM and I finished at 3 PM our time. And uh, the rest of that afternoon is sort of dedicated to family and comedy and, you know, a little bit of playtime, but um, at the start, it can feel, it, it can feel a little bit like, what it must feel quitting cigarettes. Like, you know, something's missing or you feel like something's (laughs) missing. And even though, you know, in the long run, it's going to be better for you. It can be hard to get your mind around that. So is there, I don't know if this is a common question or something that other people, or if I'm just confessing my own struggles, but one of the things that, that I really uh, am am glad I had the discipline to do was sort of see out that temporary discomfort or, or um, what do you say? Uh, That constant twitch that I have to just go and do something and, and use that attention towards something more significant. Is there, is there sort of like, a, for lack of a better term, a, a coming down period of, of uh, this obsession to work that we have where if we're disciplined with the structures we put in place, it can, it can start to, um, you can start to reap the rewards? Yes. Um, I want to say it's about three weeks for, or to, for, essentially kind of your, your brain or nerves to adjust to sort of, work, uh, sort of to the, to the habit of, you know, doing things like working in a different way or sort of having routines that emphasize a combination of focused work and deliberate rest, which is, I think, a really important thing. Um, more general, you know, and part of the reason that I say that is that uh, it's generally about three weeks for any serious new habit or, or, of, or structure to kind of take hold and become and cease to be completely alien. That's also about how long it took me to develop my, my um, routine for writing in the super early mornings. Right? Mm. I, am, I am not an early bird and I never have been. But when I was writing my second book, I realized, you know, I had a job, I had kids. There was no way that I could do what I did in college, which was, you know, open up the computer at like 11 p.m. and just <laughs> go until the, you know, until the early hours. And so I tried flipping the day and it took, it probably took about two or three weeks getting up at about five in the morning before I really started seeing that, you know, I could, that, you know, first off, I was kind of getting into a rhythm. My body was adjusting to sort of waking up then, but also starting to really see the benefits of it. 
And I think that part of it was simply kind of giving the nervous system time to adjust to operating at an hour that had that it had never seen unless I'd been up all night, which is a very, very different kind of, you know, <laughs> sort of kind of phenomenon. Um, and so I think that you know it absolutely is the case that the that this kind of there is a kind of adjustment period, um, a sort of acclimatization period to sort of uh, to uh, to working in ways or having routines that sort of bring things like rest and downtime and serious hobbies um, into one's life. But, you know, uh, but you should, you know, rather than sort of fight against that um, or see it as a signal that, you know, that, or, or that this isn't going to work for you um, or to treat it as a signal that, you know, basically you're right on track. Um, you know, if you still feel that way after a month or two, you know, then maybe that suggests that you need to make some kind of course correction. But that sort of sense of dislocation and, and sort of discomfort first order first off is exactly, I think, what almost all of us go through. So, mm -hmm. you know, my advice would be don't worry about it or if it, you know, at least for the first several weeks. And if it gets better, then that's fantastic. And if not, then you can think about sort of what you can do next in order to sort of find a practice that really does work for you. Yeah. Do you have a limit to how many things uh, you allow yourself to commit to? Because I'm the, uh, I hmm. find it very, very easy to go to, to continually add more to the schedule because there's there's a lot of things I love. There's a lot of things I love doing, and and I guess it's just a personality thing. A lot of things just um, capture my attention. At, but there's only so many of those that I can do effectively without, you know, compensating the quality of, of the other. So for me, in a work sense at the moment, my, my three priorities is, is comedy, is um, uh, I'm a running coach here in Melbourne with a, like an online <laughs> membership. Um, and I, I do a little bit of work in the media just with our, our local sports, which is um, football, football commentary here in, in Victoria. Um, and the, those three, they can, in fact, any of those could probably become a full-time job. And in terms of attention and in terms of how much time you could spend on it, you could just do that forever. So I understand that there's a potential risk of losing quality, even with the three. So I go, anytime I'm looking at, you know, adding something else to the schedule, I go, hang on, Tice. All right, what are you, what are you removing in order to do this? Um, have, you got a, have you got a few commitments that you're doing? Is your day built around those commitments? Is it sort of like a, a cookie-cutter structure? Monday to Friday with the commitments that you focused on? Um, when, so for me, the times that are most structured and the commitments are clearest are when I'm working on another, when I'm working on a book. Mm. Um, and when I'm doing that, functionally speaking, I'm not doing anything else. Now, sort of my, once I get into it, my mind is not interest, really that interested in taking on anything. And I've learned the hard way that that's, you know, that that's basically the mode that I get into. Um, now, unfortunately, sort of, you know, the answer, sort of what that answer sort of turns, sort uh, of boils down to is the number of things to which one should commit under those circumstances is one. Um, <laughs> and, but I think that the, sort of that, you know, uh, that, 
you know, as a practical matter, when I'm doing that, you know, I am still walking the dogs. I'm still doing, you know, sort of doing things to try and sort of refresh, you know, sort of refresh myself mentally. I'm still doing the rest stuff. It's just I'm not doing any other kind of stuff that uh, stuff that I would recognize as work or stuff that you know has my byline or you know that I can invoice for. So, but um, I th uh, and honestly, I haven't thought about like how many things you ought to commit to when all of those things have relatively short duration or mm -hmm. shorter demands on, on my time, but I probably should. Um, I would probably sort of have fewer things, but I would finish more of them. So <laughs> yeah. maybe next, maybe next time I'm on the podcast, I can, I can sort of come back with a number. <laughs> and I appreciate your honesty. That's good. So um, I'm, I'm really fascinated in, in, in hearing you speak a little bit about your writing, because obviously writing is a huge part of the stand-up comedy world. And it's mm. it's something that I'm, I'm fascinated in myself and I'm, I'm constantly tinkering with the way that I do it. And I, I heard you reference, um, you know, the guidance that you got from the advice of, of the great man, Ernst Hemingway. Uh, when it came to, hey, you know, uh, rather than just grinding it out, you know, for a, for a few hours and, and just exhausting the tank, finish your work mid-sentence and come back, let your mind just play over the idea that, you, that you've been working on and, and subconsciously, you know, uh, moves are being made even when you don't realise. In fact, Bob Dylan, um, who I've got up here, is in his autobiography, he, he speaks about how, um, this came to mind when I heard you speaking a, a, about just that subconscious mind working, he, he put it so beautifully, I'm going to destroy it, but he was speaking about how he had two songs written um, sort of back in the, the late 60s. And he's like, yeah, I'm not sure what to do with them right now. They're not quite done, but what I'm going to do. So he put the two different songs in a top drawer um, and he locked the drawer and he said he's just going to let those songs speak to each other for a couple of months to find out what it was <laughs> um, that he needed to change. I thought, oh, what a beautiful way to, to, to think about your work. But also just I guess what he's trying to say is exactly what you speak about that, hey, even when you even when you've put the pen down for the day, it doesn't mean your mind stops dwelling and or sort of mulling on the idea. So, um, are, are you able to unpack that idea a, a little more for us and how you use that to to benefit your writing? Sure. I mean, I think that the you know you, it is it is absolutely the case that the mind does not stop working on problems when we put the pen down. But the important thing here is that it's a different part of your mind. Um, it's a part that is that is. I think functionally impossible for us to control uh, whose work we cannot control. It's part of why it's powerful, but which we can nudge in or of uh, nudge to, or of uh, uh, to help us, uh, to help us solve problems. Um, neuroscientists talk about something that they call the default mode network, which is a, of which is a set of connections within the brain that switch on whenever we relax our conscious attention and stop focusing on some particular thing. One of the interesting features of the default mode is, first of all, that it switches on very, very quickly, right? Literally in the time it takes your eyes to blink, the you, if you're in an fMRI machine, you can see the default mode starting to try to start uh, sort of uh, to activate. The other thing is that it likes to work to, among other things, um, take up problems that we've been working on, but which we have not finished. So anybody who's had that experience of trying to remember the name of the actor who was in that thing, and then the movie and that TV show, and you can't remember who it is. And then five minutes later, you, you know, the name pops into your head while you're unloading the dishwasher. That's the default mode, continuing to work on a problem, even while you have been 
sort of focused on something else. One of the things I think that very creative people do is recognize the power of the default mode to solve problems that elude our conscious attention and or effort. And part of what they're doing in their days is creating more space in which the default mode can continue to operate on and turn over problems and find novel solutions, even while we are gardening or walking or running or sort of do, you know, or doing something else restorative. Um, you know, there's, and this, you know, there is evidence that this, uh, this continues to operate even, you know, even while we are sleeping. Right. John Cleese has this lovely story about how when he first started writing um, comedy when he was an undergraduate, that he would get stuck on a bit, stuck on a punchline in the evening, and he would go to sleep. And then the next morning, he would go back to the sketch. And not only was he able to finish it, he couldn't remember why he had gotten stuck the night before. <laughs> of course, the thing is, you can't, you know, you need to do the work first in order to get the punchline, right? <laughs> you know, you can't just sort of, uh, or if you don't have the second without the first. Mm. And I think that the, you know, we tend to underestimate the value of the default mode and what it can do for us at our own peril, right? We think mm. of, uh, we think of accomplishment as a matter of, you know, as a matter of hard work. We think of success as something that comes through of a combination of labor and merit. And I think that, uh, you know, and we want it to be predictable. And for all of those reasons, we tend to sort of distrust or not want to rely upon, you know, this kind of sort of fuzzy, you know, sort of fuzzy creative subconscious. Um, but when we do, you know, number one, there are or great, uh, there are great things that, that can result. And number two, I think that the, the lives that I've studied show that even while you can't, you know, you can't summon it, um, there, are th there are ways that you can design your day to give space for sort of the default mode to do its thing in not a completely reliable manner, but a fairly reliable manner. Mm. And, you, and you can see, and I think that, you know, in countless creative lives, um, we see this at work and we see how people have benefited. And I think it's something that we all should take more seriously and make more time for. Yeah, it's interesting that um, we, we often think it's just a, a modern day problem, don't we? But yeah, you look back at, at the Stoics and, and hen people like Henry David Thoreau like years later, um, and you realize that even these times where we look back at um, like I look back at Thoreau at the time he was writing, writing Walden. I was like, man, like there was literally nothing to do then anyway. So it was easy for you to have nothing to do. <laughs> but uh, you hear him speak about just how, you know, how easy it was for his time to get used up by, by whatever commitment. It's interesting that we often think it's just the internet or we, it's just the television or it's just the mobile phone and sure they all play a part. But yeah, it, it makes me laugh to think that blokes who were living in a wood hut a couple of hundred years ago were having these same challenges as as what we are now. So I'm uh, I'm, I'm glad we've got people like you coming out and uh, and just providing some structure and some guidance <laughs> for it. But are there, are there like I've named a couple of um, like uh, Henry David Thoreau is obviously a, an example that I really admire in this particular field um, for for especially his couple of years study at Walden, just going out and you know trying to live really purposefully. Um, and I know you speak about an, a number of examples in, in your book, Rest, but are, are there particular examples or particular inspirations that you have 
that really stand out to you from, well, it doesn't have to be writing, but just life in general? Mm-hmm. Um, I keep coming back to sort of Charles Darwin as someone who is a real model for me of both how to do extraordinary work, though I can never hope to uh, to do to do something as sort of significant as you know the theory of evolution. None of us can, but he's also someone who figured out you know how to do work of this quality while also having you know sort of struggling with sort of some demons, you know, sort of the death of a beloved daughter that haunted him for a long time, for example, but you know managed despite that various health problems, et cetera, you know, and so on to live a life that I think is both sort of admirable for its, uh, sort of for its, for its qualities in terms of, you know, the amount of leisure that he had and sort of the amount of time he had for family and for other kinds of commitments, but also admirable in sort of the, in how well, in, how well-designed and thoughtful and in some ways modest it was, Mm. right? Darwin was someone who had a very well-worked-out daily routine that he kept to really for, you know, pretty much for decades. And And he, by all accounts, was, you know, quite happy with that. And, you know, in contrast to, you know, today's of, you know, jet setting, jet setting public intellectuals or entrepreneurs, you know, who can't resist a Twitter scrap or, you know, starting some kind of public fight or, you know, sort of anti-wokeness university as we've got in, <laughs> sort of now in the U.S. right now with the University of Austin. We're not but, too far behind you, Alex. No, over here in Melbourne. <laughs> but you know, there is. There is a great deal to be said and a great deal to be accomplished by, you know, ha- by living a life that at one level is quieter and more modest, but which deliver, but which you know, allows for, sort of, I think, out, you know, sort of accomplishments that outstrip anything that we will see, you know, sort of a thousand Twitter intellectuals would be able to achieve. Um, and so, you know, that's, uh, so he keeps coming back as sort of the person who, you know, who more than just about any other figure seems to me figured out how to live well and lived, you know, lived on the right side of history for more of his life. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so many other people like, you know, when I was, when I was young, I grew up in, grew up in Virginia, um, you know, and, you know, figures like James Madison and especially Thomas Jefferson were real idols. And, you know, you realize today Jefferson's legacy is incredibly complicated, both in terms of sort of, you know, which mainly having to do with his attitudes towards and treatment of the enslaved peoples on, you know, on Monticello. And he writes really nice stuff about leisure and free time. But to me, that is forever sort of clouded by the fact that his leisure came, you know, came quite literally at the expense of other people's freedoms. Mm. And so, but a lot of that, there is far less of that in Darwin's life than sort of than in just about anybody else I can uh, sort of I can name. So, um, you know, he also made it into his 80s. So that's, 
you know, as, as I, as I get older, that's something that I appreciate more and more. So <laughs> isn't that true? No, that's yeah. a, that's a great example. That's a great example. Alex, I've got my eye on the clock here. I told you sure. 45 minutes, we're already 10 minutes over that. So I don't want to take up too much of your afternoon, but um, man, hey, really, really great to, to have you on board. Thanks so much. My my camera has broken, so I'm coming through the eye, the, the computer camera today. So I'm hoping uh, I'm hoping you can you can see it clear enough. You look crystal clear. I can clear. see you fine. I can see you just fine. So whatever's whatever's happening is strictly strictly on your end. I shouldn't have mentioned it then. <laughs> <laughs> well. Hey, uh, really appreciate your time, man. And uh, as you said, like I'd I'd love to touch base with you maybe in a few months whenever you've got a little bit more time and um, do a do a part two. Sure. No, that'd be a pleasure. So, awesome. and thanks for thanks for having me on for part one. To be awesome. continued. Awesome. All right then. Thank you, man.